0: Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we would love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, thank you for the chance to be in this place. Thank you for your love and mercy to us and that we can come to this place when we're weary and tired, when we um, are uncertain of where to look for hope when, uh, and also in times of plenty and comfort that we come together to lift our voices together, to open your word together and to hear from you. And so today as we begin this new series, we pray that through this you would speak to us in your word that you would show us what you have for us, that you would help us to see that your word answers some of the questions that we struggle with and wrestle through. And so today, we lift this time to you and plead with you to meet us in this place. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, today we're starting a new series in the book of Exodus. Um, Exodus is helpful for us, so it's back into in the Old Testament, and today we come into this with a question, really asking the question that all of us at some point in our lives will struggle with, of asking, does God really see us? Is God really interested in and present in this world, or is this world, is he more of like a cosmic watchmaker who, who created this place and wound it up and then let it spin on its own? Because when we look around us, things can look pretty dark. The news cycle is hard to read every single week. And, and when we look around us, we see natural disaster. We see division and oppression and violence and tears and pain. And let alone then the battle that every one of us faces within our own hearts, within our own souls, that it's not just what's out there around us, that, that so many of you are come in, have come into this place fighting insecurity and anxiety and fear and loneliness. Some of you are fighting chronic pain and illness. Some of you have come in today carrying guilt and shame for things that you've done or things done to you. Some of you are are carrying the weight and the anguish of fractured relationships and you wonder, is God there? Well. The answer is yes, and scripture shows us again and again the goodness and mercy and love of God, and it doesn't shy away from the difficult things in our lives, the suffering we experience, the loneliness and the despair. And so this fall, we'll see this through Exodus, and today we'll see that in the darkness, God is not absent. This is what we read. We're in Exodus chapter 1, which um, Jess mentioned. We have the, the journaling Bibles available for you. If you haven't picked one up, it's a suggested donation of four bucks um, we have a, it's steeply discounted. They're a great tool because you can take notes right in them, and they're available in the back. Um, if, if, and if you need one and, 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 it's, and you don't want to pay the $4, take one. It's all right. <laughs> Suggested donation. This is what we read in chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for pharaohs store cities of Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they, set ruth- they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live." But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dwelt, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then the Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so this is how Exodus opens. In and, and the story of Exodus, I think we have a lot of conceptions about what Exodus is. If you've grown up in the church, then you've heard stories from Exodus um, throughout your life. And, and we, we have a tendency, our children's stories tend to, to be interesting representations of biblical truth that don't always capture the fullness of the story. Like, like it's always funny to me when people put Noah's Ark as a nursery theme when that's like the outpouring of God's judgment. Um, we look at Jonah as a hero, and the fish is his salvation, and then you read Jonah, and, Jonah, and the story ends with him sitting above a city wanting God to destroy the Ninevites that he's saving. Like we, we twist these stories. And so if you've grown up in the church, you've heard stories from the Exodus account that, that may or may not be true and faithful to what we're going to see in the biblical text over the next 12 weeks or so. Um, if you haven't been grown up in the church, then you still may have some exposure to Exodus because these are storylines that have been everywhere. I mean, whether you go back to like Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments or whether you go back more recently to Prince of Egypt and the animated film where the Israelites are building the pyramids um, in Egypt and it, we have concepts of some of these stories and so some of those concepts will be true some of those you, you may be surprised as we actually read the text. Um, so today when as Exodus opens we, it begins by telling us that the sons of Jacob the sons of who is also Israel were in Egypt and, and it serves the chapter one serves as a bridge for us between Genesis and Exodus. The first five books of the Hebrew Bible and of our Bible are, are called the Pentateuch. And they were written by Moses, likely with help from other editors along the way. And as these were written down, these are the foundation for the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the rest of the whole of, the, of Scripture itself. And in these five books, they, they hang together, they work together, and so Genesis is where things begin. This chapter bridges to Exodus. But there's some big differences that we notice right off the bat. When Genesis begins, the central character is very obvious. The central character in Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God did what? Redemption Hill, you're sleepy on this September 8th morning. <laughs> in Genesis 1.1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, and so, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it describes creation. God is the central character. It shows his power in creation, and then through 50 chapters, through the narrative of Genesis, if you, if you step back and look at it, you'll, you may notice that gradually God as a character in the storylines retreats from center stage to more of a backstage role. And so when you get to the Joseph story in chapter 37, which covers 37 to 50 in Genesis, we read about Joseph's narrative and and we read that he was sold into slavery by his own brothers, that he was framed for a crime in Potiphar's house, that he was forgotten in prison and languished in prison, and but interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and rose to prominence as the second in command of all of Egypt. And so you read this story about Joseph, who's referenced here, that that's how they got to Egypt, but in that entire section of Genesis, there is no immediate encounter between Joseph and God. God personally. And that's different than his ancestors. That's different than Abraham, who was taken by the hand and led out to look at the stars and given the promise by God look at the stars, that's what your offspring will be like. That's different than Isaac, who had personal interaction with God. It's different than, than Jacob, who had who wrestled with God. And so God controlled Joseph's destiny and the destiny of his family without revealing himself directly. And so when we get to Exodus chapter 1 now, as this book opens, there, there's a clear feeling and impression that God is distant. Here, we, it's history that we get that the people were in Egypt, and, and so they were there, and the, and the people were growing and multiplying, and, and, but there's a feeling here that God no longer reveals himself directly to his people. Now, the first seven verses are times of prosperity. The people grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. And there's, there's echoes of creation, the creation mandate there. When God called people, he fashioned human beings in his image and likeness and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so here, the people of Israel in Egypt were being fruitful and multiplying and filling the place and subduing it. And then we read in, chapter, in verse 8 that there arose a new king in Egypt, one who didn't know Joseph. What we don't know in the text is how long that gap was. The Israelites were in Egypt for around 400 years. They most certainly weren't enslaved for that entire time. And we don't know when this happened, but at some point along the way, a new king came to power that didn't know Joseph, that didn't know the history, that didn't know these people. And what we see then, what happens is, as they turn against the Hebrew people and enslave them and kill their children, it begs the question, where is God in this? Why is he distant? Now, critical scholars have raised questions about the authenticity of, the ex- of Exodus, because, um, of course, um, there's always someone that will raise the question of, 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 on anything. And, and so, um, I had the privilege of studying under a, an Egyptian archeologist in seminary named Dr. James Hoffmeyer. Um, he wrote two books on the Exodus account and the authenticity of it. If you're interested in getting into a scholarly handling of the presence of Israel in Egypt and the authenticity of this account, um, I would recommend these two. I think we have a slide for them. Um, he wrote these books, Israel and Egypt and Ancient Israel and Sinai, that detail what he has done, and it's very convincing from one of the world's foremost experts. His books include a lot of compelling data and research, interesting images that he has of hieroglyphics showing um, the Egyptians enslaving people and making them make mud bricks. Um, and he also shows ruins of a storage city made out of mud bricks at, at Ramesseum, um, which we also have a picture of from his book. Um, so this is another thing, just as an aside. We don't know how, lo- how long the Israelites were enslaved, but we do know that they were, made, they were asked to make mud brick structures. This is not the pyramids. I hate to disappoint you in, in the opening of Prince of Egypt. Um, if that's what you've hung your hopes on this morning, um, hopefully we'll give you something more sure. Um, it tells us in, in Exodus 1 what they were building though. It says they were building storage cities. Storage, in a city in this time in history is any walled area. And so that picture shows a storage facility made out of mud bricks. And so these st- storage cities are what the Israelite people were building. Now, dating the Egyptian history, the book in Egyptian history, is complicated. Um, I've become most convinced that, that Joseph rose to power under the Hyksos reign in Egypt um, under, because those were Semitic foreign rulers that came into power as Pharaoh. The new kingdom kicked out those foreign people and, and the Semitic people. And so that actually makes sense here with Exodus 1 when it says that there arose a new king who did not know Joseph. And I think that could explain some of the cynicism toward the Hebrew people. And the fear that the foreigners were becoming too populous, which is a fear that we can see in our own culture today, so it is not foreign to us. A fear that can lead to violence. And so, the foreign sons of Israel were hated and enslaved and mistreated, again, begging the question, where is God? And In Exodus 1, we learn a lot about God, about his relationship to his people. And we'll start with an example for us of how to live when God seems absent, and see um, what we learn about God as we move through. So when God feels absent, that's the question today, where, what do we do when in our lives God feels absent? And, and the first two chapters show this at a systemic level, at a, at a broader level, and then a more personal level that we'll get into next week. And let's begin, though, by admitting that some of us have a hard time admitting that God feels absent. We're often scared to acknowledge the absence of God because there seems to be no no place in Christian worship for for that question of saying, God, where are you and why do you hide yourself? We get scared theologically to ask that question, but the Old Testament's language of absence is is rich and it's something that we'll explore. And so as we look at how to respond when God feels absent in the face of injustice and in the face of suffering, we have two women who are held up as an incredible example. The heroes of chapter one are two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Puah. And I, I love this, that they are told directly by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who was looked at as deity, worshipped as a god. He com- tells them directly, when you are there, when they're on the birthing stool, which is how, how, the, how pe- Hebrew women and how women in the ancient Near East would give birth, was on a stool or between a, a brick structure. He's saying, when they are there, if it's, a, if it's a girl, leave it alone, but if it's a male child, kill it. And so he told them this, and then they, they don't listen to him, they don't obey him, and I love that their answer is, hey, Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are more vigorous than the Egyptian ones. We just can't get there in time. These women stand boldly in the face of the most powerful man, maybe on earth at the time. And so what do we learn from them? Well, first, we learn that when God feels absent, we should fear God and not man, this is what we read right in the text, that, that the midwives feared God and didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded them. And so, so here, we need to, it, when God feels absent, there is still a calling and, and on us to respond by fearing God and not fearing man. Now, I use the word man here, capitalized inclusively. Why? Because biblically we read this. In Proverbs 29, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man is something that every one of us struggles with. The fear, that, 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 uh, the fear of other people, what people think, what people will do, how people respond to us is something every one of us struggles with to the point that a counselor named Ed Welch said, the fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if somebody denies it. And you get that, right? Like you get people that are like, I don't care what anybody thinks. This is a popular thing. I can remember that like... You're finding your identity as a middle schooler or a high schooler, you're like, I am unique, I am courageous, I don't care what anybody thinks of me, and then you go and shop for your unique clothing at the same stores that everyone else shops at. That was always the mystery of Hot Topic to me. <laughs> it's like, that is an amazingly unique safety pin covered hat that you bought at a mall. It was a very old-fashioned sentence, I think. Is, I don't know, if, does Hot Topic exist anymore? Have you guys heard of that store? <laughs> um, so we, we have this ingrained into the fabric of our being, but it's often subtle. Um, Trillia Newbell wrote on this. She said, this is the fear of man. It can, it can manifest itself in a variety of forms, uh, but there's one thing that we can be certain of that it's a snare, that's biblical. And so she says, I've discovered that when I'm tempted to fear man, it's usually, it's usually rooted in a fear of what someone else thinks of me, but as I dig deeper, I realize that I'm actually judging and assuming the worst of them as well. And so we, we all wrestle with this, but look at the bravery of these two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. They stand in the face of Pharaoh, they don't shrink back. And in the midst of that, what they do, the second characteristic we see from them, they fear God, not a man, and then, and when God feels absent, they keep living in the light of God's kingdom. Again, these midwives are heroes. They put their lives and their well-being on the line for what purpose? To save Hebrew babies. Because Pharaoh was calling for a genocide. Genocide. And they put themselves at risk to protect others. If you are convinced that God exists, then even when he feels absent, there's a call to us to keep living in light of his kingdom. The systems of power in this world will always stand against the kingdom of God Almighty. Everyone. And if we believe that the Bible is God's word, if we believe that God exists and has revealed himself to us in his word, Even the Israelites here, if they believed in their history that God had come to Abraham and promised Abraham, and we'll see this, we'll look at this more next week, but in Genesis 15, God told Abraham specifically, hey, I'm gonna give your descendants this land, the promised land, um, that is still one of the most fought over pieces of earth in the world. And God made a promise to Abraham about that place, but he said, before that happens, your descendants are gonna go to Egypt, a land not their own, they're gonna be there for 400 years, and they're going to be enslaved. And so all of this stuff was already told to Abraham. And so if the Israelites looked back at that and, and believed that, that that was revealed and true and authentic, then what that means is they could still look at their current circumstances. And when God felt absent, when they were wondering, where is he? And even willing to cry out, are you here and are you listening? That still they left, kept living in light of his kingship instead of the kingship of Pharaoh. And there's a calling to us. What we're taught in Genesis is that all people, every person on the face of the earth, bears God's image and likeness. Hebrews and Egyptians, the enslaved people and the free people, everybody. In theological circles, we call this the Imago Dei. And God's people throughout the ages and centuries have always been advocates for life and dignity. But the systems around us and the systems of power in our world will always push against that. And nobody's exempt here. In our own context, it's not like right or left gets this nailed down. There there are points at which the kingdoms of this world stand against the kingdom of God. We see it in our own cultural setting right now. We see it as, as we see people that treat immigrants and foreigners and asylum seekers as animals, not people. We see it in the killing of the unborn who can't raise their own voices, where just this week, a people in power advocated for abortion as a means of population control, knowing that it affects lower-income people of color at the greatest rates, and, and that shows an ugliness that defies the image and likeness of God in people. We see it in our own, in our own nation's story with, with the reality of slavery, the traces of which still course through the, the American bloodstream, including segregation and, re, and redlining, systemic and race- and place-based oppression. We see it in disregard for the poor, both in urban and rural settings, that the, or a moralization of poverty, as if, if someone is, is in, stuck in poverty, that that's representative of their sin and failure, rather than taking into account that there are circumstances beyond their control. The systems and structures around us and throughout all of human history have always been systems and structures that defy the image and likeness of God in, those, in, in human beings. And here's maybe the most depressing part, is that some who are Christians can be more influenced by the platforms of political ideology than by the kingdom of God that they claim to be a part of. It's a symptom, if that's a symptom of that within you today might be that as I walked through just four broad level issues right now if you were nervous about the way I that the fact that I mentioned one or nervous about whether I was going to mention other and you were hearing it through a politicized lens rather than through a moral and theological lens and you find yourself ready to stand up at the mention of some and say that's right and you're ready to amen which nobody did (laughs) and at others you're like hey he just mentioned that thing I'm ready to stand up and walk out the door it may be that you've been more shaped by the systems of power around you than by the kingdom of God. And you see, that the ugliest reality in the American context is the Christianization of platforms that stand against God's word, against God's character, and against God's commands to his people. We slap Christian language on it and decide this is the way that Christians ought to always approach it when it stands directly against him. At least Pharaoh was honest in his expectations. He was honest enough to, I mean, we read right in the text that the Egyptians were looking at what was happening around them and saying, oh my gosh, these people have gotten, there's too many of them. These aren't, these aren't our people. They're not supposed to be here. They're in a land that's not theirs. And if our enemies come in, they're going to turn on us too. And so we've got to end this. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh's like, they're not worshiping me as their God. And so he was willing to wipe them all out and use them as slaves. But these midwives stood up. Shifra and Puah are heroes. They lived out the kingdom of God and the values of his kingdom in the face of great danger. But look what they did in, in doing that. They didn't, they didn't just shake a fist at Pharaoh and, and, and tweet about him. They didn't, they didn't stage big events or platform themselves. They didn't even directly defy the law at the time. I love that, that it's, again, just a shrug. I'm sorry, those Hebrew women are vigorous. Now, all of those things can have their place. There's times when it's right to shake a fist at what's happening and, and speak. There's times when, yes, big events can make a difference, and there's times when we, are, we may need to defy the law directly. But, but these two women took a beautiful approach of nonviolent action to make a real difference in the lives of oppressed people and to protect these babies from harm and from certain death. And again, with a shrug, these Hebrew women are vigorous. We can't get there in time. Because the belief of the Imago Dei and the value of all people was at the core for them. And this is extended to God's people throughout history. It's the roots of the church, too. A a sociologist named Rodney Stark wrote a book, The Rise of Christianity. And this is what he observed of Christianity in the Roman Empire in its earliest days, centuries after this, uh, this event in Exodus. He said, Christianity revitalized life in Greco Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. Christianity was not a, primarily a rural movement at its inception, it was an urban movement. He says, to cities filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services." Do you hear this? What he is observing as a sociologist that the church provided in the Roman Empire, everything mentioned there has a theological foundation. Everything mentioned. So when he says that homeless people were able to come in and find charity but also hope, it's because they were being shown that their, their needs were being provided for and they were being told about the ultimate home that is offered to them in Christ. Newcomers and strangers come into a city, which is something we see in D.C. and feel their foreignness and are welcomed in as family. Orphans and widows, an expanded sense of family because we are adopted children of the king in Christian theology. That' cities torn apart by violent ethnic strife, there's a new basis for bridging those gaps, because there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, because we are all one in Christ Jesus. There's not divide, male or female, we are one in Christ Jesus, because this theology was actually lived out in practicality by the church. What has changed in our cities? There's still homelessness. There are still widows and orphans. There are still strangers and newcomers. There are still, there's still violent ethnic strife. There's still disasters in people's lives. And the people of God are called to continue to live out the light of God's kingdom where he has placed us. Church, if the people of God were able to be known simply as those who fear and obey God rather than man and who advocate for life and dignity of all people, that would be enough. And it would honor Christ. Christ. Because Christ is the king who gave himself up to give hope to all people. And so when God feels absent, we are called to fear God, not man, to keep living in light of God's kingdom. And third, to trust that God uses the least, the weakest, and the unknown. He sees the midwives, and do you hear what happens? They stand up in the face of Pharaoh. And somehow they aren't killed. And instead, God saw them and dealt well with them, it says in the text. And he, because they feared God, he gave them families. And, and so somehow these women were protected by him. And even though he doesn't seem like and feel like God is directly intervening on behalf of the Hebrew people here, we see that he is still orchestrating behind the scenes. And I love this. There's a little nuance here that I want you to catch. In the Exodus storyline, Pharaoh is never named Now, in some ways, it would be nice if he was named because it would be easier to locate where this happened in Egyptian history. But there's something important there. I think there's a theological reason that Pharaoh isn't named. Again, he was seen as deity in Egypt. And so the fact that we are uncertain of which pharaoh this is and that we have to discuss the dating because he's not named is a clear, I mean, it's, it, is, it is the Exodus account and Moses and God himself through his word saying you aren't worthy to be named in this story. But you know who is gonna be named in chapter one? Shiphrah and Puah. And I love the irony that these two women, their names are preserved for all of human history so that now in 2019 in Washington, D.C., we're talking about Shifra and Pua, and we have no idea who this pharaoh is. Why? Because God noticed them, because God saw them, even though they were the least of the people in Egypt. I mean, it's unlikely that most Egyptians knew their name. They all knew pharaoh's name. But we are, we, this is important for us because we are all hardwired to focus on the notable and the powerful and, and important people. And, and we'll see that Pharaoh's time will come in Egypt. But, but in times where God seems absent, it could be that our eyes are not trained to notice the ways that he's working, that he works consistently through the unknown and the weak and the small. And in our setting, in our context, it's impossible to read Exodus and not think about parallels and connections and the importance of the Exodus story in American Christianity, and particularly in the role that slavery has played in this nation. Um, I'm thankful that if you go to the Museum of the Bible just down the street from us, um, if you haven't seen it, the displays are—it's it's a fascinating exhibit— um, but, but in the Museum of the Bible, I'm thankful that they didn't gloss over or pretend that it didn't happen, but they actually have a display that shows the Slave Bible. If you don't know what this is, you can look it up and do some research, but the Slave Bible was produced in the early 19th century in the UK, and it was an edited version of scripture specifically made for the enslaved people in the British colonies where we now live. Um, this Bible, it was edited down, and to say it was edited is like, I don't know, it's it doesn't get close to what actually happened. 90% of the Old Testament is removed and 50% of the New Testament is removed. Any passage that referred to freedom or escape from slavery, which is the entire book of Exodus, it's gone. It's excised from Scripture. And the Bibles that were given to go to the enslaved African people in the British colonies emphasized passages that encouraged obedience and submission and removed freedom. And so all of Exodus is gone. Again, 90% of the Old Testament. But again, I mean, the verse I just quoted, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. We are one in Christ Jesus. It does not exist in that, in that edited version of the Bible. You see, the slave Bible was not a Bible at all. It was anti-Christ, an atrocity against the gospel. And yet, the enslaved people in those same colonies that later became the United States knew the stories of Moses and of God's deliverance of his people. And they clung to them because God's ability to move among people was not limited to the systems of power that were trying to distort his word. There's an old spiritual that was sung that later redone even by the likes of Louis Armstrong saying, when Israel was in Egypt's land let my people go oppressed so hard they could not stand let my people go and God said go down Moses way down in Egypt land and tell the Pharaohs to let my people go the black church is a miracle of God's work and faithfulness to people in suffering that Even when given a truncated version of scripture under oppression, people were more faithful to God and to his kingdom than those who enslaved them. The people grew to have a clearer vision of who he is, a clearer understanding of how theology leads to justice, a clearer belief in a God who saves, a clearer sense of the presence of God in suffering than those who claimed Christianity and were their oppressors. God is present even though he seems absent and he uses the least among us. This is something the Apostle Paul brought up to the church in Corinth. He said to them, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That is a rough start to a passage to read like if you're receiving this in Corinth, right? Like Paul, I, I know, but that's harsh, man. But he says, but God chose what is Isn't that great news? That our standing before God is not dependent on our standing in this world. That it's actually the opposite, that God chooses the weak, the foolish, the things that are not to shame the wise. And that's exactly what we see in Exodus chapter 1 with two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. And the reason I keep saying their names is because I want you to remember them. God thought it was important enough to write their names down. And so we're going to keep saying it was these two women, Shifra and Pua, who are named here for standing with God in the face of a Pharaoh who goes nameless. We need to retrain our eyes to see what God sees. Let's not get caught in the matrix. Have the lenses of this world when we count who is significant. And that is really, really tough in this town. Because the air we breathe is filled with ego we are told over and over and over again who's important and who we need to pay attention to let's retrain our eyes to realize that god uses the least the weakest and the unknown fourth know that god is in control when god is when god feels absent know that he is in control that's what we see here. He is in control in spite of suffering, injustice, and oppression. In fact, he's particularly present in those times. That, you see this, that in verses 1 to 7 are an, or an undetermined time of prosperity. So the people of Israel were there. They started out with 70 people when Jacob's sons joined Joseph in Israel. And so when they came there, because there was a famine and Joseph had grain for them, there's a whole storyline that you can go back and read in the end of Genesis, and when they landed there, there were 70 people, and for an indeterminate amount of time, they grew, they increased, they multiplied, things were good, and they were, the land was filled with them, and it was only when this new king came into power that they were thrown into slavery. And so, but notice that, that God's absence, feel, you feel it throughout Exodus 1, and in the years of prosperity, it's there too. And this for us is, again, telling. For most of us, the times when we have suffering is when we'll cry out to God and say, where are you? But it's often times of comfort and prosperity that we live functionally as atheists because we don't need God's presence to intervene. And so today, the focus that we have, though, is that he responds to his people's faithfulness, these two women, Shifra and Puah. And next week we'll see that that's not only true on this broad level that God is still there, but it's also true on a personal level. But today, the focus is God is present with us. He is still in control even when he seems absent. Now, through the Exodus story, I mean, many of you know what's coming because we've read these stories, so you know, well, there's a confrontation coming where there's plagues and and something happens with Passover, and then there's like a sea crossing, and and you know again prince of egypt there are whales swimming by them and so that's i mean that's something we all want to see and experience we we know that there's mount sinai that comes if you know if you've really read exodus before on your own you might know there's a golden calf that comes into play at one point moses throws down tablets and breaks the law and has to go back up the mountain like there's a lot coming in exodus but what we'll see about god and who he is is that god sees and hears and knows his people and remembers his covenant That God reveals himself by a personal name to his people. And in Exodus, is the first time he reveals himself by that name. We'll see that God saves his people and provides covering and protection. That that he delivers his people when there seems to be no way out. We'll see that God provides for his people all that they need and, and that he gives his people community and help that he calls his people to be a kingdom of priests, and and that when our hearts are fickle, his glory is in the fact that God is still gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in covenant love. And so this is what we're looking ahead to. And so when God feels absent, we need to be able to look back at our story and, and the promises he has made, and we'll see through Exodus that even when he feels absent, he is still in control. And fifth and finally... When God feels absent, trust that he is still moving and working. Exodus 1 sets the stage for dramatic intervention. But the salvation that will to come won't make sense if we don't understand what the people need to be saved from. And so that's why today we didn't jump forward past this point. I wanted to sit in Exodus 1 where God feels absent because for many of us, that's actually where we live most of life. The Hebrew people in Egypt. This story was adopted rightly by the enslaved Africans in America, and and even now extends to all who suffer and aren't that we can see that we aren't alone in that. We aren't alone in wondering where God is, and we can look to a God who does intervene. He's moving and He's working, and even when He feels absent. I think where we see this most clearly is in Christ Himself. And in Christ, God God took on flesh, and became a human being, and lived the fullness of the human experience. And and I think there are times when we lose and forget about the humanity of Christ. We know about his deity, and we, but but we forget about his humanity. We forget that when he was in Gethsemane, he was, he was so anxious and worried about what he was gonna experience the next day or that night as he got arrested and beaten and he knew he was headed toward death on a cross. And, and more than that, he knew that he was headed toward bearing the weight of the sin of all of humanity and he was crying out to God as his father, saying, saying would you please take this cup away from me? Is there any other way? If not, then, then your will be done. We lose the fact that Christ in his humanity from the cross cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's recorded to us in Aramaic because that was the language that Jesus spoke and I think the apostles realized as they were writing this down that they wanted to record what he had said because this was a cry from the depth of his soul crying out, Father, where are you in this moment? And even that, we theologize away and take Psalm 22 and say, well, when you get to the end of Psalm 22, it says that God is always present with us. And so clearly it would have been a breakdown in the Trinity for Jesus to experience a separation from the Father, and therefore he couldn't have meant what it sounds like he yelled. I don't buy it. Christ knew what it was to feel abandoned and alone and to wonder where is God in this? He himself, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us, who was tempted in every way we are but without sin. And this gives us hope that Christ in his humanity felt the absence of God in his suffering. And in his suffering, we can see that, that God does not just work in spite of suffering and in spite of the darkness we see around us, that he works through it. That God is not just subtly present when we feel alone or present in a theological way, but he is orchestrating things for our redemption and our good. And so that when we read Romans 8, that talks about all of creation is groaning and longing for the day of its redemption from the day that when it will be purchased out of its bondage to human sin and, and corruption, that in that in with the redemption of, of the sons of men and the sons of God, that, that we are all looking toward that time that God is, and then it, when we get to the end of Romans 8, and it says that he's working all things out for the good of those he, who love him. That that's the hope that we have is that even when God feels absent, we can trust that he is moving and he is working and that it's through the death of Christ that Christ found life. It's through the death of Christ and his suffering that he accomplished the mission that God had called him to and it was in that lonely moment on the cross that he accomplished the salvation of all people that we can turn to now and enjoy the presence and the goodness and the grace and the gifts and abundance that God gives us because of what Christ went through and because he went before us to show us that in the lonely moments, God still works. And it's only through his suffering and loneliness and sorrow and death That true life and light was able to break into this world and bring hope of resurrection. So what Exodus 1 shows us is that when we are prospering and still, and this is the thing, some of you today are in a good season, in a good stretch. Praise God for that. You don't have to walk away from here with a poverty theology going, well, I really need to figure out why I'm suffering (laughs) if this this book is going to mean anything to me this fall. No, if you're in a good season right now where, where you're in the first seven verses of Exodus 1 experiencing good things and you're growing and you're strong and, thing, and, you, and th- good things are happening in your life, then you might need to hear that God is not absent. That you're still called to fear God and not man. That to keep living in light of his kingdom and that might put you at risk of, of losing some of that comfort. To see that God uses the least and the weakest and the unknown and don't let your comfort blind you to the way that he really works. You have to know that He's in control and, and that everything you've got is a gift from Him and trust that He's moving and working. But this is, and it's also true for those of you who are suffering today. And I know that some of you have walked in here shattered and brokenhearted. You're, whether it's looking at things around you or things that you're dealing with internally and personally, some of you are, came in here weary and worn down and wondering, where is God in my life? Because He seems absent. You need to hear today that Exodus gives hope. He sees you. You might feel alone, but you're not alone. You might feel unknown and unloved and insignificant. God knows your name, and he loves you. The most significant people in God's eyes are rarely those of significance in the eyes of the world. One of the great elements, again, is the shade thrown at Pharaoh here, that God's name is revealed in Exodus and Pharaoh is never named. The two people named in our passage today, both Hebrew midwives, women who would have been thought to be insignificant and yet recorded forever in God's word so if you've come in here today wondering where is God in this world around me and does he see me, does he know me, does he love me, then you need to know that through Christ you have the answer to all of those questions, that you can be known by God, you are loved by God, and that your name can be recorded in his book of life for all of eternity if you turn to him in Christ. And then we look ahead to an eternity in a perfect kingdom a kingdom that can never fade away, a kingdom of perfect justice and peace without suffering and sickness and sorrow and death. God is not absent, even if it feels like he is. Let's pray. And Father, would you help us with this? Would you help us to see this world and see people around us and to see you in ways that only you can free us to. Would you help us to, to trust that you are moving even when it feels like you're not around? Would you help us to believe that you are sovereign and in control even when we can't make sense of the world around us? Would you, and I pray right now, Lord... Mm-hmm. For those who have come into this place today really struggling, really suffering, really wondering where you are, feeling like you're absent, feeling alone, and I pray that even right now, by your spirit, you would bring comfort and hope and boldness and courage. That you would help us and empower us to the faithfulness we see in Shifra and Pua. I pray that you would direct our eyes and our hope to Christ, who's gone before us. Our savior who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And shows us and gives us the hope that you're not just able to work in spite of our suffering but able to work through it. Would you, would you direct our eyes, Father? to the cross. And we pray this in the name of our Lord, our Savior, our Hope. Jesus. Amen.